The prophet Jonah teaches us that faith without repentance isn't enough. St. Paul warns us that time is running out. And the gospel teaches us the demands of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Welcome to the Scripture Commentary Series. Today, I am discussing the readings for the third Sunday of Ordinary Time. Remember to like, comment, share, subscribe, rate, leave a review. All the things helps me fight the algorithm gods. Also, if you want to ask me a question, you can ask me by emailing me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. I'll answer it on the podcast. So we're discussing the readings for Ordinary Time. The first reading we have today is from the prophet Jonah, the third chapter. We've skipped over the incident of Jonah in the whale. And now we are in the city of Nineveh and God has commanded him, uh, commanded Jonah to go through the city and to preach repentance to the city, that the Ninevites have to repent and believe or their city will be destroyed. So what we get, we get a description of the city that Nineveh was enormously large city and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began his journey through the city and had gone but a single day's walk. So for the Old Testament prophets and in Jonah, Nineveh is a symbol of a corrupt city. It's a Gentile city. The size of the city is proportional to the size of its corruption. So the reason why we are told partly that Nineveh is such a large, large city is because of its enormous corruption. So more people, more wickedness, lots of people, lots of wickedness. That's the idea that's going on here. However, what we see in our readings is it was supposed to take three days to go through the city. But it highlights here that Jonah only went a single day before it seems like the Ninevites respond positively to Jonah's message. Now, if we kind of expand the greater context of Jonah. We know that Jonah is a reluctant prophet. He didn't even want to go in the first place. He didn't want to preach at all. But he goes, and despite his reluctance, he's very successful. That It only takes one day, and it says here that they proclaimed a fast, all of them great and small, put on sackcloth. His preaching is very successful. It says here, the people of Nineveh believed God, and they proclaimed a fast. So, The efficacy we see here, or the power of Jonah's preaching, is not attributed to Jonah, but it's attributed to God. It says here they believed God, that they didn't believe Jonah. They believed Jonah's message, but they didn't uh, impute power to Jonah. You see, the the inspired writer says that it was God who, who had this effect on the people. So they proclaim a fast and all of them put on sackcloth and ashes. This is important. It's very important that we highlight that they believed God and then they fasted and put on sackcloth. Sackcloth, of course, is an image or a clothing of the penitent or of repentance. So fasting, sackcloth, all throughout the Old Testament, this is a sign of remorse. This is beyond remorse. It's a sign of repentance. That's important because then we see in the the next few verses, when God saw by their actions how they turned from their evil ways. 
So it was not just that they believed God, that they then turned from sin to faith in God, but it says here, God saw by their actions. So they didn't just believe, but they embodied or enfleshed in concrete action their belief, that they, they're acting on their belief in visible actions of repentance. There's this idea that the, the sin might be forgiven, but it's workings. It's kind of it's the stain or the, the long-lasting effects of sin must be removed. And that's what penance does, that the sin is forgiven. They believe God forgives them. However, they have to take this additional step of repentance to remove the stain of sin. So we have two ideas that are connected here. We have faith and repentance, particularly repentance in the form of definite acts and deeds. It's not just enough. That's what the prophet Jonah is saying. It's not enough to just have believed in God. They needed to put that belief in living action. I think sometimes the idea of faith and works, again, is a very fraught concept and very fraught language. But I think what Jonah is saying here is not just faith and works, but there's this idea of faith and action. I don't know if that would be a more appropriate way to, of describing it or a less controversial way of describing it. But the idea that if one has faith, they should express it in a change of living. That faith may bring one into God's favor and may bring one close to relationship with God, but it's through repentance that one expresses that relationship with God. In, in any relationship, in any human relationship, we certainly would say that it's not enough to, to enter into good graces with that person or to, to be just in friendship by word, but also by deed. The same thing is happening here, that they express belief in God, but then they, you know, to use a, a modern phrase, they put their money where their mouth is, right? They say, I, we believe, now we have to show God that we believe through concrete actions, through visible actions of repentance. These two ideas will be very important throughout our readings, the idea of faith, but then faith embodied in action. So we also get this line that he, God, repented of the evil that he had threatened to do to the Ninevites. He did not carry it out. He did not carry it out. So there's a few ideas here. One, we have the idea of prayer and providence, that God actually wills the accomplishment of his divine providence through prayers and actions of his creatures. You know, in the words of philosophy, we would say that God does not will everything to happen by necessity, meaning everything that happens is not directly caused by, by his will. It's, it's not as though everything is faded and fixed. In a sense, we can kind of go back, we can retrace everything back to God's will, and God's will is certain. However, he wills things to come about through the action of his creatures. This is uh, carrying out God's will through secondary causality, as philosophy will call it, or through contingent causes. So God willed 
that the Ninevites would repent, but he willed it through the preaching of Jonah. Jonah acts as that secondary causality. He acts as that contingent causality through which he accomplishes his will. So people like St. Thomas Aquinas will say, prayer and providence are not at odds with one another. That one, that through one's prayers, God brings about the accomplishment of his will. That's why, you know, if there's somebody we have in mind that we want their conversion or there's something we desire from God, we should pray. We should pray for it because it, it is perhaps through our prayers that God actually wants his will to be accomplished. So we're never excused from praying. The other idea here that God repented of the evil, we hear this kind of language a lot, this very human language of God. He repents, he's angry, he's jealous, he regrets all these different things. And and St. John of the Cross has a good saying for this. He says that God is above the heavens and speaks from the depths of eternity. We on earth are blind and understand only the ways of flesh and of time. So it appears to us that God repents because that's the only way we can describe it. We have to always remember that scripture is a narrative. It's principally in a narrative form. So we're not going to get philosophical treaties. We're not going to get philosophical language and explanation for God. You know, the purpose of the book of the prophet Jonah is not to give us a philosophical dissertation on the immutability of the divine will or the unchanging nature of God or the nature of divine providence. We can take Jonah and philosophically and give it a philosophical analysis But in the narrative form, we're going to speak in the language that we know. We don't really, humans really don't know the depths of eternity. We don't really think in terms of the eternal. We think in terms of temporal. So when somebody says they're going to do something and then they change their mind, then they do something else, we say that person repented because that's all we see it as. But God in his kind of in the depths of eternity, saw foresaw the repentance of the Ninevites working through Jonah. In the narrative form, we're not going to describe it that way. In the narrative form, we're gonna we're going to see the progression of events. We're going to see cause and effect. We're going to see point A, point B, point you know C as in a linear fashion. And as a linear fashion, when something changes course, we're going to say there was a repentance, there was a change of mind. That's from our point of view. That's from the point of view, in the words of St. John of the Cross, from the point of view of flesh and time, that we can only understand temporality and not eternity. We don't have the mind to grasp it. So keeping with the theme of time, we're actually going to move to the second reading where St. Paul warns us that time is running out. From now on, let those having wives act as not having them, those weeping as not weeping, those rejoicing as not rejoicing, those buying as not owning, those using the world as not using it fully. For the world in its present form is passing away. So the the context of our second reading, the greater context of it is eschatology and devotion. 
So St. Paul is principally worried about the end of the world, the second coming, and our devotion in this present age with the end of the world in mind. Some scholars think that St. Paul at this point believes that the second coming is imminent. So if it's imminent, we should really have all of our priorities, all of our values, all of our focus, all of our attention on the second coming. That if Christ is coming soon, we should keep that, we should, our entire lives should be oriented towards that reality. There should be nothing that keeps us from it. So what he's saying is the end is coming. Devotion and attentive prayer and focus on the Lord is your number one priority. So when he's talking about those having wives as not having wives, acting as though they don't have wives, what he's saying here in, in greater context is that marriage can be a distraction from total devotion to the Lord. That in this new era, total devotion to the Lord is necessary. However, if you're married, that could present a challenge of total devotion. But what St. Paul has in mind, this is an important note, is he doesn't have in mind here someone who is in love with their spouse. What he's talking about here is someone who is absorbed in their spouse and in their marriage, kind of a, a complete absorption in the other. It's true that a spouse has claim on your first affections, and kind of in the hierarchy of human affection, your spouse is first. That's not what he has in mind. What he has here, what St. Paul has in mind is someone whose spouse has a, an exclusive claim on your affection. And he's and St. Paul is trying to get us to reorient that thought and say, yes, in the order of human relations, your spouse is first. However, in the kind of cosmic order of relations, because the second coming is, is on its way, Christ is your first priority, and then everything underneath that. So he's saying that since this present age is going to pass away, marriage, its daily concerns, all institutions really, and marital preoccupations, worldly affairs, all of it will melt away. All of it will be dissolved in the second coming. The one thing that will endure from this life into the next is one's relationship with the Lord. That will endure into eternity. So the, the new age has begun in Christ. St. Paul believes that in Christ, this new age is here. So therefore, the world in its present form is passing away, all institutions included. Marriage will pass away. You know, kind of hierarchies will pass away. Worldly preoccupations, all of it will pass away. So what the result of that is, the result of this new age and everything passing away is kind of a, a radical reorientation, a radical revaluation of all human commitments and relationships. So there are two elements that St. Paul is holding here at once. On one hand, the second coming is future. It's on its way. On the other hand, the second coming or the, the age of Christ is here. So it's a future reality, but also a present reality. So what he's saying is, even though this, this event, the second coming is out 
you know, it's out in the future, the, your present values, your present attention should be reoriented towards Christ. So that's the immediate historical read of St. Paul. But we can narrow it down to the more personal level. That is to say, time is running out for us and for the world, for our world. Our, our individual world is passing away. The end of the world can be apocalyptic. It could be the second coming. But there is going to be an end of your world. There will be an end of my world. And in the end of our individual world, there will be a judgment. And so we can still take St. Paul's kind of immediate or pressing warning about the end times as still very prevalent today. Yes, he may have thought that it was coming sooner than expected. However, the new age of Christ has a present reality to it. As, as I mentioned before, St. Paul's it's future, it's also present. So in this present moment, living in the end times, you know, everything after Christ is technically the end times, that should change our priorities. The new age of Christ should bring about within us a revaluation of, of our values. Where, where do we place the highest priorities? What is the most important value for us? What St. Paul, I think, is asking from us is a detachment from the present world and, and a focusing on the world to come. As he says, those who have wives should act as though they, they don't have them, and those who are using the world should act in a way that they don't use the world fully. I believe what he's saying here, and I believe what he's calling us to, is a detachment from the present moment. So let's talk a little bit about detachment. So in the idea of detachment, God wishes us to love ourselves, and he actually wishes us to love created things. But in measure assigned by him, with a view to what God's pleasure is, and not our own selfish satisfaction. So the essence of detachment is not in the material thing. It's, it's not things itself that are the problem. Detachment has to do with the will, not in the material object. Because you might say, how can St. Paul ask me to be detached from my spouse? Am I supposed to leave my spouse? And that is not what he's calling for. The issue is in our attachments. And principally, to, I would say, to the attachment to ourselves. Because it's true that you might have a hermit who has nothing, right? There's no material possessions. You may say someone who gives away everything and has nothing. But a person always carries themselves, right? You can have no material things, but still in your will, you're attached. So the point of departure for detachment is always the self, it's always in the will. And it's important to remember that the point or the end goal of detachment is always union with God. That's what St. Paul is saying here again, is time is running out with that in mind, with the, with the idea that the end of the world is coming or the end of your world, that you, you will only have a finite amount of time on this earth and that the world as you know it will come to an end in some form. With that in mind, radically reorient yourself 
to God and realize that devotion to God and union with God is actually the heights that you're called to. You're not called to have a complete absorption in your marriage, but actually your marriage is meant to be a means to union with God. So detachment is not the end in and of itself. It's not the end goal. Detachment's goal is union with God. So part of detachment is always generosity, death to self, and sacrifice. The point of departure is yourself. So it's about losing yourself. It's about you know selling yourself. It's about letting go of the obstacles to living totally for God. Marriage can be one of those obstacles. That's what St. Paul is saying. So he's saying people can be totally devoted to God as long as, again, things are properly ordered, as long as where where God has assigned things is where you also place it. In the hierarchy of values, your marriage is not technically number one. God is number one, and then marriage, but through marriage to God. That it, marriage does not have to be an obstacle, but it can be if you have your priorities mixed up. So on the topic of priorities, I want to switch over to the gospel and talk about the gospel. So the gospel is coming from the first chapter of the gospel of Mark, and it can be broken down into kind of two parts today. So the first part is Christ's proclamation of the kingdom, and the second part is the calling of the first disciples. So I, I think what we'll see is the first reading and the gospel are connected by the themes of faith and repentance. And the connection between the gospel and the second reading is detachment. Let's dive in and unpack those ideas. Before we get to the proclamation, it says in our gospel that John had been arrested. John the Baptist was arrested. After his arrest, Christ begins to preach. So the fathers interpret this as once John the Baptist leaves the scene, Christ can begin to preach because John represents the end or the waning of the law. So now the grace of the gospel can appear. So you have the law with its earthly blessings and promising of, of you know, kind of long earthly life. And then you now have the gospel that promises heavenly life and long life in eternity. That's how the fathers interpret it. So they needed Christ kind of waited until waited to preach the kingdom until John the Baptist left the scene so that now a new type of gospel could be preached, a new good news could be preached. So it says here that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The idea of time, the word in Greek is uh, kairos, is a little bit difficult for uh, English translation. There's no kind of perfect equivalence, uh, some scholars say, for this particular example because on one hand it has the idea of proper time or opportune time. There also, can also be this notion of almost crisis. But certainly time in this context can, we can at least say, means that in Jesus, God is breaking into history to fulfill his promises and bring about a whole plan of salvation. That is a decisive moment and turning point 
that was fixed by God in kind of the depths of his eternity, that, that now is a, there's a new beginning, there's a new era in Christ. This kind of goes back to our, our second reading about Paul's insistence that there's a new era in Christ. That's what our gospel is also talking about, that there's a new beginning here, that the time of fulfillment is here. So Christ goes on to say that the kingdom of God is at hand. So the kingdom of God is hard, also hard to define because it's it has a future, about a futureness to it, that it will be, it's, it's not until the future that the kingdom will be in its fullness. But there's also a, pr- a present moment to it. But there's also this transcendent element in its in the, the kingdom of heavens, the kingdom of God's origin. But I, what all these ideas are trying to communicate is the kingdom of God is ultimately God's project. It's ultimately his action in the world. And then we get the famous line, repent and believe in the gospel. So the gospel of God, what does the gospel of God mean? Or what does gospel mean? So it comes from Evangelion. This term is a word that was used by Roman emperors, you know, kind of Roman emperors who understood themselves as lords, redeemers, saviors, uh, gods sometimes. So they, they would issue this, the Roman emperors would issue this as a saving message that it was an idea that the Roman emperors had good news for their people. But the gospel writers, some people theorize, some scholars theorize, took this word of good news and said, and had this idea kind of implicit in it, that the Roman emperors tell you that this is the good news, that they they proclaim to you good news. But we proclaim to you the true good news, that God's entrance into history in the person of Christ is the true news, that the Roman emperors only attempt to tell you saving me- messages. They, pre- they present themselves as gods and rulers and, and redeemers, but we are telling you the true good news of a true redeemer in the true God who has entered history. So for the gospel writers, the message of Christ is not just something of communicating information or authority, but that something has entered history. Someone has entered history and has transformed the world as we know it. So when St. Mark speaks of the gospel of God, the point is it's not emperors who can save the world, but it's God. It's God's action that saves the world. It's God's word that appears to us in both word and deed that supersedes the message of the Roman emperors, that they merely attempt to do the things that Christ will accomplish. So this idea that the kingdom is at hand is the idea that the flow of of time, of history, again, that there's a fixed point, an appointed time that only God knew in the depths of his being that fixed point in the flow of time has come now, that th- that time is here. And, and this, is going, this is going to call for a radical transformation and radical demands. So the, the gift of salvation is here. That's what Christ is saying in his proclamation of the kingdom. But the, the answer demanded from that gift is conversion and faith. Repent and believe, conversion and faith. So what the, the kingdom demands, a, a response that involves not only a change of attitude and of faith, but, all, but, all, but at its deepest levels, a change of life to repent. The Father's 
we'll talk about how th- these two ideas together, faith and repentance and the proclamation of the gospel, that if fear of punishment won't move you, perhaps the good will, mo- will move you. So that's why Christ tells us that it's an appointed time. This is the good news. Repent because of the goodness of this mes- message, if not because of the fear of punishment. There's also this idea that the kingdom of God is always at hand for for every person. There's all there's an eternal present moment to it. So this gospel that we hear today, the kingdom of God is at hand, is also addressing us today, that it's always the time to repent and believe. So moving on to the second part of today's gospel, the calling of the apostles. So as Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee, he sees Simon and his brother Andrew. They're casting nets into the sea, and he calls them. And he says, and he says, come after me. So in the Greek, it's a hortatory kind of come after me. It, it highlights the, the power of the one who's calling. So it's more of a, a come forward. It has this, this force of power to highlight that Christ is the one who calls. Then there's a, an immediateness to the response by Simon and Andrew, that they, they immediately, that there's this power in the call of Christ, that there's no hesitation, there's no reflection on the part of the disciples. They just immediately follow. And this idea of immediateness, this idea that they drop everything and go, I think goes back to our second reading, this idea that time is running out the world is passing away. When Christ calls us to follow him, be prompt. He's, he's, don't wait. Don't hesitate. Come immediately, for time is running out. The same thing happens later in the same gospel, where he calls James and John. They immediately leave their nets, they leave their boat, they leave their father, and they promptly follow after Christ. The father's uh, comment on that the disciples leave everything And they say that the nets, the boats, and the father symbolize the three things that a follower of Christ must leave behind. The follower of Christ must leave behind sinful actions, which ensnare us like a net, earthly possessions like boats, and family ties represented by the father. We see here in the call of the disciples, the second reading. The second reading was was telling us to, again, radically reorient and and reevaluate our priorities. That's being exemplified here by the, by the disciples. They are not hesitating. Time is running out and they're detached and they know they're being called to detachment from the present to follow Christ. But in between the calls, there is this very common phrase that Jesus says to them. Jesus says, come after me and I will make you fishers of men. So I want to unpack that a bit. I want to unpack the idea of fishers of men. The symbolism of fish in the Old Testament often have to do with the helplessness of humans before the power of God. There's usually kind of a negative connotation to it. But I want to expand upon that or at least talk about fish symbolism in general and try to connect it to today's gospel. Fish symbolism is kind of all all over our churches and all, all throughout Christianity. You know, you have even I think in the second or third century, you have this idea that baptismal fonts or baths are called fish ponds. You have the idea of the fish, the Jesus fish, um, that each each letter of the Greek word for fish corresponds to Jesus 
designates Jesus Christ. Then you have the fathers who comment on fish symbolism, saying that the word of God is likened to a fisherman's hook. Just as the hook does not catch a fish unless the fish takes hold of it, so the word of God does not catch people and reel them in to eternal life unless they take the word into their hearts. This idea of using the word of God as sort of bait. But if we look at just fish themselves, fish live in the darkness of water. In darkness, water, these are always symbols of, of chaos. Darkness is always a symbol of kind of sin and ignorance. So by being fishers of men, what Christ is calling the apostles to do is to take men from the darkness of, of sin and bring them, catch them and reel them into the boat of the church, into the light of revelation, from the depths of sin to the light of grace. And he's calling them, in, in a sense, to, to use the word of God as that bait. There's even some medieval depictions of, of Christ as the bait that, that lures Satan to, to lure, that lures Satan out of the depths. You know, the cross is this kind of idea that of a, of a trick of, of God on Satan, that Satan believes that Christ has died on the cross, but it's actually through the cross that salvation is brought. So this, there's this idea of kind of drawing men out of the depths of the water, out of the depths of sin, by the shining brilliance of the truth of the gospel. There's something somewhat unique about fish, and that's that their eyes are never closed. So we can take this as a symbol. We can take the symbol of the eyes of the fish as the eyes of the soul. The men's souls are always open and always searching for the truth. They're always looking for something. But because we're fallen, we often are like fish that go after fake, shiny bait. Things that appear to be true, but are not true, but that are not actually true. So Christ is calling them to use the true bait of the gospel. In a sense, to be to seduce men by the truth. Instead of using fake, shiny bait, the apostles are called to use the shining truth of the gospel to lure men out of the depths of their sin. Once a fish is caught, it's taken out of the water into the boat, but there the fish dies. Let's continue the symbolism. It is the natural environment of a fish to be in the water. And when it's out of the water, it dies. It is now the natural environment or natural state of fallen man to be in the darkness of sin, in the chaos of kind of disordered passions. But once we are caught by the hook and bait of the gospel, we are brought into the boat where we die. But it's through our death that we are brought to new life. Many of the fathers will talk about how the net that fishermen use is kind of the, the net of the gospel that scoops up fish. But they'll, they'll say that once the fish are in the boat, you, you know, natural fish die, but men are brought to life. I say that we die spiritually in the boat of the church, but through that death, we are brought to new life. So our natural environment in which we live and we think we thrive is the fallen world. And when we're taken out of that, it's true, we die, but we die to be born into new life. So con connecting that a bit to detachment is we think uh, detachment is this painful thing, 
that it's that we can't imagine our life without our attachments. We can't imagine life outside of the waters of sin. But once we start to purify ourselves of that, once we're brought out of the water into the boat, we begin to to see we, we begin to see that that so-called natural environment was not our our true heavenly calling. That actually what we are called to do is to die to our our sins so to live for Christ, to radically reorient all of our values. This is in part what I think Christ is calling his apostles to do. When Christ calls his apostles to be fishers of men, I think what he's calling them to do is to call men out of the deep and to have them die to their their natural selves to be born into new life. So there we see the clear connection to the second reading. And in the kind of first half of our gospel, we saw the connection to uh, the first reading, which was that faith and repentance are, are, are always connected together, that Christ says to believe and repent. The disciples embody both faith, repentance, and detachment, that they hear the call of Christ, and by following him in their, in their bodies, again, in, you know, not just their souls, but body and soul, they exemplify both faith and repentance, that they, they leave aside their, their daily occupations. They're, they leave it immediately as a sign of detachment, so to, to follow Christ. And although it doesn't explicitly say in Mark here right now that they repented, but I would say that we could, we could see that by following Christ promptly, immediately, that is a form of repentance, that they've, they've now embodied their, their belief in the physical following after. Because to follow after Christ is, is a way to say that one has a personal relationship with him or that one is imitating the pattern of Christ's life. And to imitate the pattern of Christ's life is to repent, I would say, is, is to, to be on the path of repentance. So just as the Ninevites heard the preaching of Jonah and immediately responded, so too the apostles hear the preaching of Christ, they hear the repentance of the kingdom, they hear the call of the kingdom and repentance and immediately follow, and they, and they drop everything in a sign of detachment. And I think what the disciples represent for us today is our promptness to the call of God, that time is running out. If you hear the voice of Christ, don't delay, immediately follow. And there might be much that Christ is asking of you. Again, it's, it's not that we have, we have to materially separate from things. That might not be possible, but we have to at least separate from them in, the, in our wills. Maybe Christ is calling us to detach from things physically and materially, but, he, but there is a certain level of detachment that's called for from all people in the call of Christ to be prompt, to be detached, and to repent. That faith cannot be a substitute for repentance. Faith, again, brings us into relationship with God, but then we exemplify or that we, we prove our relationship with God through concrete physical actions of repentance and following him. We can further do that by acts of detachment, by realizing that we, we don't have all the time in the world and that our ultimate call is to be in union with Christ, to follow him ultimately to heaven and to imitate his life on earth. For the world in its present form is passing away. 
if you hear the voice of Christ calling you, be prompt. So I will end with a quote from St. Gregory about the call of the apostles. St. Gregory says, While the disciples did not own much, they gave up a great deal. Someone who has left everything behind, no matter how little that is, has left much. Whoever has kept nothing has abandoned a great deal. The Lord considers the heart, not the substance. He does not measure the amount we sacrifice to him, but the effort we make to do it. The kingdom of God has no assessed value. It is worth everything we have. In God's eyes, no hand is ever empty of a gift if the ark of the heart is full of love. Thank you for listening. Remember, if you have any questions or if you have anything you would like me to talk about or expand upon more, please email me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. I will see you next week.